You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Accounted For, the podcast that shares and inspires unconventional career journeys. Please help the podcast grow by telling your friends who don't know about it and giving us a nice review on iTunes or whatever podcast listener that you use and even writing an awesome review helps along the way. Now, today's conversation is with Justin Jackson. He is the co-founder of Transistor.fm. It's a podcast hosting service and full disclosure, Accounted For is hosted on Transistor and I first learned about the company and Justin because Basecamp's podcast is actually hosted on Transistor and this was during a time when I was on the market to figure out, okay, what kind of hosting software should I use that has the analytics I want, that has the optionality I want, as well as for the right pricing. So the classic investor in me likes to look for the best value, and this is how I came up on Transistor. But I further learned how Justin bootstrapped Transistor two years ago to a company that now generates close to about $50,000 in monthly recurring revenue. And this got me really intrigued and decided to reach out to Justin to learn more about, his, more about his story. And the funny thing is Justin didn't start out in tech or podcasts, but actually started his career at a not-for-profit for the first seven years. In our chat, we dive deeper into Justin's decision into switching into tech at the ripe age of 28, not something a lot of people that I know would easily make the decision for. And so we kind of dig through that decision process and then we talk about we kind of talk about how he navigated a career to product management while bouncing around between tech startups to starting his first company, building a community with numerous podcasts, and his journey with building a successful bootstrapped SaaS company. And also we also talk further into the world of podcasting and media as well. And so this was a super fun conversation where I just learned so much from Justin in terms of I say all ranges of just podcasting as well as on the idea of just bootstrapping and building your own company and how I should also think about solving the problems I'm trying to solve with OMD Ventures. And I really do hope that you get as much value out of this conversation as I did. And so without further ado, here is my conversation with Justin. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, we have Justin Jackson. Hey Justin, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, it's good to be here. Good to good to be talking to another Canadian, even <laughs> if we're on different sides of yeah. the country. Oh no, for sure. Uh, Justin here is the co-founder of Transistor.fm. And Justin, for my audience members who may not be familiar with your company, would you mind describing Transistor uh, as well as kind of like an insight into the business model too? Sure. Yeah. It, so just like you need hosting for your website. Every podcast in existence needs hosting, somewhere to host the audio files, somewhere to generate the RSS feed, someone to provide analytics, and that's what we do. So every every time you click play in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify, it that audio file is being streamed or downloaded from a podcast hosting company somewhere. And uh, we're pretty small compared to some of the other folks, but we've been doing this since 2018, uh, myself and my co-founder, John Buda. 
Awesome. And full disclosure for our listeners, I am a very happy customer of Transistor. So when I ask certain questions or I've asked certain views, I might be a little biased because I obviously want to protect my own decision making because I want to believe I made a good decision. <laughs> but I think this this is also helpful because I've had friends ask me about podcasting and they say, hey, so how do you get in? How do you get your podcast out on Apple and Spotify? Do you talk to them? And I go, nope, I just have a host that does everything for me. And that's what you guys do for me. That's right. That's my favorite type of disclosure right there. <laughs> <laughs> and like, and you mentioned that there are a lot of different players out there. Like I think before, so before I used uh, Transistor, I was on Squarespace just because that's where my website was based out of. And, but mm-hmm. there's other, the older, bigger guys out there like uh, Libsyn, Podbean, like Blueberry, mm-hmm. those other services. Yeah. What, what would you say makes you guys different than those? I know why I chose you guys, but I'd be curious mm-hmm. from your perspective. I mean, the the honest answer, a lot of it has to do with our brand. And a lot of our brand is um, partly who I am and partly who John is. So people who know us sign up. Um, and I'd been building an audience in kind of the entrepreneur startup bootstrapper community for quite a while. Uh, and another reason a lot of people go with us is that we offer uh, live customer support whenever we can. And so uh, we try to get back to people within the hour, but really right away if we can. It's not unusual for me to be, you know, right before bed to be checking messages and answering uh, support tickets. And um, John, uh, who's the primary developer on the project has built a podcast hosting uh, application before. And so this is his second time doing it. And he was able to take all of that experience from the first time. And, uh, you know, programmers generally don't like to rebuild stuff they've built before, but if they have to, uh, they can make really good decisions, really good design decisions. And so the, uh, the, the app itself has been streamlined uh, and has been made as simple as we can get it so that uh, it really doesn't have a lot of cruft. It's easy to understand. It's easy to navigate. And um, that's really, I mean, in terms of my motivation for wanting to partner up with John as a podcaster, I just wanted things to be as simple as possible. And also, uh, a lot of folks come to us because we allow you to create multiple podcasts for one price. And that was always something that bugged me is I, I started in 2012 and I had, you know, one show, but then pretty quick after I started other shows, sometimes they were private podcasts. Sometimes they were um, like I wrote a book and then I wanted there to be an audio version of that. And so I just started to accumulate all of these other podcasts. And uh, every time I started a new one, I had to pay for another hosting package and so from the beginning, I wanted us to say, no, let's just offer, pay one price a month and you can start as many shows as you want. No, yeah, that's definitely been a, that was a big uh, factor for me as well. Cause I haven't started a second one yet, but I am working on it. And so mm-hmm. I preemptively thought about it and I thought, yeah, this in the long term, transistor will allow me to do more of that and give me that optionality. And you, you yeah. guys are the only ones that offer that from what I know. Yeah, initially we were the only ones. Since we started doing this, we've had some competitors that oh, have really? copied copied that business mm-hmm. model. But um, yeah, that was it's been a 
it's been really helpful for us. And especially since, you know, some podcasts aren't meant to go forever. Uh, right. I had a podcast that I did for a year or two called Build and Launch, where I was building and launching something new every week. And for that season of my life, uh, you know, it was it was an incredible journey. I was doing all these wacky experiments, you know, uh, everything from, um, you know, I I uh, I, can't, I I wanted to work in a restaurant for a full day and come up with a menu item and then make it from scratch. And then it was just all this crazy stuff. But that experiment had to come to an end. I just couldn't maintain it. But then you have to keep that podcast around, right? Because people are still listening to it. It's something I'm proud of. So yeah, to not have to like keep paying for something just to keep it up on Apple Podcasts and Spotify was a big deal. Actually, uh, using that as like a transition point, um, you you started, I think, some like four different kinds of podcasts from what I'm from what I'm familiar mm-hmm. with, and right now you have your current podcast, which is Build Your SaaS, which follows your you and John's journey of building Transistor. But mm-hmm. this accounted for is my first podcast, and I've there have been times when I've been building it where you know things have been hard, or like I've been uncertain where can this go on, like what. Like I've, I started it with the intention of making something for like the next 10 years, but it's got mm-hmm. me also thinking about, well, I've also read that you should quit things quickly if things don't work. But at the same mm-hmm. time, you, I'll, I'm always con- confused on when do you really know when something's not going to work or work? Um, because you, I feel like perseverance is a big requirement to just cons- consistently push through things. And mm-hmm. I'm curious for you, when you're thinking about like stalking your first podcast or your second podcast, like w- what was that decision process like in the idea of like quitting something? Like, cause I have this fear of like, but what about this audience I built right now? Like it's, it's not big, but it's still, you know, a dedicated group of people that pay attention yeah. to me. And I'm so thankful for that. But there's also the fear of like, what if the next one I start isn't as great or should I just tweak this current one? Like all, mm-hmm. yeah, all these kinds of thoughts that pop up. So I, I imagine mm-hmm. you've gone through that yourself as a veteran oh, totally yeah and so i'd love to hear like your what your process process was like yeah i mean it is it is this is the the existential question it's uh i wrote a blog post about this i, I think i've written a few posts on this because it's it's such a difficult topic and you know uh who's uh it's don schlitz has that famous country song the gambler you've got to know when to hold them know when to fold them right know when to walk away and know when to run. And, uh, and then the next line is every gambler knows that the secret to surviving is knowing what to throw away and knowing what to keep. And that really is the thing, isn't it? You're always kind of like, okay, should I throw this away or should I keep it around? Hmm. And that's the secret to surviving. It almost adds more stress <laughs> and anxiety to the, to the whole process. Um, yeah, you know, it's difficult. And when I look back on my life now, there's been a series of decisions I had to make, you know, for the first, for my twenties, I was a youth worker, uh, working with high school students. So I was doing social work, essentially. And, you know, I had to decide when I was around, I mean, 28 when is I 
was when I made the decision. But up in, you know, 26, 27, 28, I have these thoughts of, should I stay or should I go, right? Should I, should I move on or should I keep going? And when you're on that cliff of uncertainty and you don't know if your next step is going to send you over the cliff or <laughs> if it's gonna, you know, be something solid there, uh, those are difficult decisions to make. And part of me doesn't have a good answer because, you know, in most of those decisions where I moved on ended up being good. And I think once you start to have, once you start having that feeling of, you know, this job or this project is no longer serving me, I'm no longer getting out of it what I wanted to, then maybe it's time to switch things up. Mm -hmm. It could also be a, a stage of life thing. Uh, you know, your, your ability to switch things up gets a lot more challenging the older you get and the more uh, encumbrances you get. You know, as soon as you have a mortgage, as soon as you're married, as soon as you have kids, um, whatever responsibilities you have, um, they limit your ability to just move on. But when you're young and you don't have as many of those, it, it makes sense to try a lot more things out, right? The best advice I've had on this is uh, Derek Sivers has this post called Change Jobs Like Tarzan. Are you familiar with this? No, I, I'm actually not familiar with them. But it's funny. I actually okay. re recently reread uh, Derek Sivers' book, um, Anything You Want. Like Oh, such a great last book. Week. <laughs> yeah. So his advice is... You know, Tarzan is swinging through the jungle. And as he swings, he reaches for another vine, but he doesn't let go of the other vine until he's got a grasp of the next vine. Mm. And Derek says, you know, uh, making decisions, especially decisions about changing jobs or changing careers is kind of like that. You can certainly reach for another vine, but don't let go of the old one until you've got a good grasp of the new one. Hmm. And I've taken that to heart and it's actually made these kinds of decisions a lot easier. So, you know, I'm thinking about changing jobs. Well, while I have a job, I go out and uh, do interviews and get, doing job interviews when you already have a job is the best feeling in the world because you're not, there's no anxiety, there's no pressure. It's like, I don't need this job. I already have a job. I'm here exploring something new. And then, uh, you know, it could, it could be the same with a podcast. You know, I, I had a podcast and then I decided to start a new one, but I kept producing the old one for a while just to see, you know, how does this feel? How does this compare? Uh, am I getting everything out of the new one that I wanted to, mm -hmm. right? And so I think that's been some, some advice that I've used is to you know, to reach for new opportunities, but don't let go of the old ones right away, mm -hmm. uh, which is a little bit counterintuitive, especially in our culture. A lot of folks say, yeah, you just got to leave. You just got to burn your bridges. You got to quit cold turkey. And I think in most cases, taking Derek's advice is probably smarter. No, I, I totally agree. Like I, I kind of jumped into things cold turkey as I kind of alluded to uh before we started recording where mm -hmm. i took a full-time kind of break to do some more introspection but now looking back 
whenever my friends ask me, hey, Dan, should I just quit and just pursue different projects? I tell them, no, you shouldn't because it's extremely painful. And it's kind of, like it's been really rough the last two years. And I tell them, no, don't do any of that. Don't do any of the stuff I did. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, um, think about making small projects while you're at a job. And mm-hmm. Yeah, the, 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 the flip side to this, and this is where the tension comes from, is I was talking to a friend who had decided to shut down his business. And he posted the announcement on Facebook. And I, I had been the one who was kind of advising him to shut down the business. I said, mm-hmm. this isn't serving you. You're, you're miserable. You're complaining all the time about your customers. Uh, you're not making very good money. You're putting in lots of hours. It gives you all sorts of anxiety. And I said, just it's, it's a good time to shut things down. And uh, he posted on Facebook that he was thinking about shutting things down. And people in the comments were like, oh, no, don't do that. Like, you've got to stick with it. This is your, your baby, you know? And so much of our identity can get caught up with, um, you know, what we've been doing, the job we've been doing, the project we've been running. And uh, eventually, if you have a firm grasp of that new vine, it's still going to be uncomfortable when you make that transition. When people, you know, they remember you as the person who did that thing. Mm-hmm. And now you're trying to say, no, I'm not that person anymore. I'm trying to do something new. I, I'm, I'm about to have a new identity. I'm going to build something new. And I think our culture views stopping or quitting as failure. Like, oh, I'm going to shut down my business. Oh, that's so bad that it failed. And I think that's wrong. I think, you know, we're taught to persevere, to keep going, but we can't expect people to continue every project they start. I think we need to make more room for people to quit. And um, you have to make room for yourself to quit as well. So uh, I'm going to say both and here. I'm going to say, you know, before you quit something, make sure you've got a firm grasp of the new thing. But on the other hand, it's going to be uncomfortable and you need to give room for yourself to quit. And you also need to (laughs) remind other people around you that um, you need room to explore a new identity. And, um, you know, that all the great business people I follow have something, you know, they follow some variation of quitting lots of things. Yvonne Schwinard, I think, the, the founder of Patagonia says, you know, if I get an idea, I immediately take a step forward and see how it feels. And if it feels good, I take another step forward. If it feels bad, I take a step back. I learn by doing. Mm. So if you're going to learn by doing, then you have to be willing to give some things up. You have to be willing to quit. You can't just keep holding on to everything forever um, because, you know, that you'll never move forward. You, there's We all know folks who are, you know, in their forties or fifties. And they're still, I mean, the old joke is, you know, the, the guy that was on the football team and he's still holding out hope that maybe he's going to make the NFL. He's like, he just can't let go of that dream. Mm -hmm. Well, you got to let go of some of your dreams. You got to let go of some things. So yeah, yeah, I've thought about this a lot. There's lots, there's lots of reasons to quit and move on. Yeah. It's one of those things where like, I think when I first read it, I think it was one of Seth Godin's books where he talks about how people who are the best in their field have quit at 
almost everything to become the best at that thing eventually like they have to try a lot of things different things and mm-hmm. i understood it empirically where it's like oh, okay I, I see the rationality but then when you're actually in it i think there's so there's kind of that the bias that you know i talk about all the time in investing but when you're actually experiencing it, it's just so hard to even like get out of where it's like yeah but the thing that i pick i obviously make the good decision so i hope mm-hmm. we don't have to pick to quit it but yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> i've had to quit so many things and I don't know yeah. if it gets easier. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's gotten easier for me is that now that I've started quite a few things, it, it, it's easier in business. It's more cut and dry in business hmm. because, um, you know, there's some good reasons to quit a business. Uh, markets decline, our desires as founders shift, our circumstances change, right? And so if you are you know, my friend Andrew runs a coffee shop. If the market for coffee declines, he might have to either pivot or quit. If his desires shift, if he no longer is excited about getting up every morning at 5 a.m. to open up the coffee shop and then serve customers all day, then that might be another reason to quit. And if his circumstances change, let's say the coffee shop can't support his family anymore or they have a new baby coming or whatever it is, then that would be a good reason to change too, right? Mm-hmm. And again, I wouldn't tell him to quit cold turkey, but I would say you should start investigating other opportunities and reach out for the new opportunity, grab a hold of it, and then let go of the old thing. Um, so business, I think, is a lot easier than like relationships. Those are... the those are more tricky to figure out how you're going to, (laughs) if you should stay or if you should, if you should go, but business is more cut and dry. If we can look at it that way of, uh, so for, for transistor, for example, I've never had anything be this successful and I can feel it. I can feel the pull of the market. I can feel every day I open up, you know, transistors doors for business. And every day there's a lineup of people waiting there to start a podcast. It's a very different feeling than other businesses I've started where, you know, I'm really, um, instead of the market pulling me towards them, I'm trying to pull the market towards me, right? Please come over here. Please come over here and buy my stuff. You know, trying to make a lot of noise, buying a bigger sign so that people notice my shop. This feels different. And so having the comparison of the two being able to contrast like, oh, when I launched this thing, the response was kind of muted. But when I re- when we launched Transistor, the response was big, right? We had, um, instead of having to like, what it, ah, Sivers has a line about this too. It's like, instead of trying, ah, let's see if I can find it quick. Yeah, no worries. He says, uh, when he started CD Baby, he said, for the first time in my life, I had made something that people really wanted. Don't waste years fighting uphill battles against locked doors. Improve or invent until you get that big response. And he continues, instead of trying to create demand, you're just managing the demand that's coming to you already. Mm-hmm. And that insight for business has been very helpful for me. I'm, I've been writing and thinking and podcasting about this topic almost exclusively in 2019 and 2020. The idea that entrepreneurs do not create demand. The demand comes from the market. Customers demand things. 
<laughs> like we, we don't get to wave our magic wand and say, you know, we, we build something and then we just like can sprinkle some magic on it and get people to, uh, to want it. There has to be some innate demand already there. People have to already be in motion in some way. Um, and unless maybe you get to a really big scale that most of us are not at, uh, you know, Apple to a certain extent with a big marketing budget can influence demand somewhat. But even them, like the, the iPhone, um, first of all, the iPhone took a while to, it wasn't like an immediate, it, it did well when it was launched, but it wasn't like immediately at the level it is at now. It built over time and it built on a smartphone smartphone market that BlackBerry and Nokia had been building for years and Palm before that in terms of portables, right? There, people were already in motion. There was proven market pull for things like Palm Pilots, which I had one in college and things like, you know, smartphones, which I got my first one in uh, the Nokia E37. I don't know when that came out. It was probably 2001, 2002 or something like that. Um, and so I've, I think when you're trying to decide, you know, for business, should I stay or should I go? If you're in a business where every day it feels like pulling teeth to get customers to come in, or every day it feels like you're pushing this giant ball or this giant rock up a hill and, um, and you finally get it up to the top of the hill only to have to wake up the next day and do that again, uh, those might be reasons to reconsider and look for uh, pockets of untapped demand where customers are demanding something that is not being given to them in enough quantity or where there can be an improvement or there's just so much demand that just setting up shop uh, is enough, right? Mm -hmm. People will show up at your door just because, <laughs> just because they, they want this thing so much. Like, uh, you know... Uh, I mean, we've seen a lot of this in the coronavirus outbreak. There's just, there's certain things that people want so badly right now. And if you can provide it, they'll take anything, right? Oh yeah, toilet paper. Yeah, toilet paper <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, masks. If you can produce right. masks in any sort of quantity. Uh, there's uh, hair dye, you know, there's all sorts of uh, interesting things where you can see the market. And it's interesting now because we can actually see it. Because you can go into the store and you can see empty shelves, mm. you know, like first week it was toilet paper, but now hair dye. So people are like going through these phases of being in quarantine and it's creating this demand. It's not like um, the hair dye one's especially interesting. It's not like L'Oreal has started marketing, a big marketing campaign for now would be a good time to color your hair red. This is just behavior and, you know, in terms of like where demand comes from, it's a mixture of all sorts of things, culture, current events, social media, uh, people mimetically copying what other people are doing. But regardless of how it gets created, even though that is interesting, and I, I'm still trying to like dig into how does demand get created. But uh, the idea that L'Oreal did not do anything to create that demand. The demand was there. People showed up and they bought all the hair dye. It's just fascinating. Like mm -hmm. that's how it works. And we can see it now. It's, it's not like, uh, 
it's a, I, I have to debate with some people about this in normal times, right? But for me now, it's just so apparent. Like we can go to the store and we can see what's sold out. Anyway, <laughs> I, I, I just think it's interesting. Yeah, no, definitely. And before we kind of dig into, you know, the learnings you've had with Transistor, I'd actually like to take a step back. And you mentioned about how you, before joining moving into the tech world and when you're 28 you spend about like seven years working for a not-for-profit in social services and mm -hmm. so you graduated from i think the university of lethbridge in management and then mm -hmm. went over to a not-for-profit and you mentioned we, we talked about this earlier where yeah like people get kind of comfortable and i find that when you're especially like in your even earlier mid-20s there's like this rush to find an identity you have to kind of find your place early because apparently you're supposed to culturally it's kind of ingrained that you have to have found a place by the time you're 30 you get you have to be in place for mm -hmm. something and like i embarked on this kind of weird media entrepreneur weird journey two years ago and i was 26 then and even then like i felt like i should have done it earlier or that no matter how many times I tell my friends or myself that yeah age is just a number it there always is that kind of I think element in the back of mm -hmm. my mind and I'm, I'm curious for you like when you decide to make the jump when you're 28 to say okay well I'm gonna go from not-for-profit to go into the tech world and you end up joining Mailout Interactive as like a customer experience manager and a product manager but during that time mm -hmm. what what was that decision process like when you were in that in, in your shoes at that point Mm, well, the transition is messy. The transition is uh, who would ever want to hire me after this? You know, um, the transition is lots of feelings of uh, inadequacy and angst and just like, I, I had no idea. I, I applied to be a salesperson for a window and door manufacturing company. I went and applied at the Apple store, you know, I, I had no idea what I was going to do. And uh, I feel very fortunate. I, I had like maybe two or three weeks of this thrashing where I was like, okay, what am I going to do? You know, I'm 28. I had, um, I think we had three kids by this point. And I was like, and, and having been told in the nonprofit world that for years that I was super special and that, you know, there'd be people lined up the door to hire me if I ever decided to do something else. Mm. And then to have this, this prospect of quitting and going, oh, wow, like there's just not a lot of, like no one's knocking on my door right now. <laughs> and uh, I think I was lucky in that uh, I did have somebody knock on my door two weeks later, which was Greg at Mailout Interactive. And he had known me through my nonprofit work. Uh, he was on the board and he, you know, liked my work ethic. And he obviously saw something in me that, um, you know, what was actually so fortunate is he saw me as uh, a person with potential. And there's just a different feeling. I, I remember going and, and interviewing at the Apple store and I'm 28. 
you know, I've got my degree in, in uh, management. I'd been managing teams for my whole life now. I had a team of like five people when I was working at the nonprofit. And now I'm, I'm talking to this guy and you can just tell he just sees me as a, as a, you know, some schmuck that he, he can't tell if I have potential or not, hmm. you know? And uh, Greg knew me enough. And this is actually another thing that bugs me about hiring is that I wonder how many people just don't know. Like I could have killed it at that Apple store. And, and uh, I didn't get the job. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it, at the time, it just made me feel bad about myself. But Greg saw that I was the kind of person that if I got into a company, I was just going to work super hard. I was going to learn on the job. I was going to do whatever it took. And, you know, I, I started there already pretty old to be starting a career in tech, right? I was 28 years old, started just as a customer support person. And then within two or three years, I was product manager. And I just worked really hard. I learned a ton. I, uh, I knew how to uh, interact with people. I knew how to, uh, to a certain extent, how to sell things. I had been fiddling around with web development and computers my whole life. And so I had this uh, foundation of technical skills I could bring to the table. Uh, you know, there's things I was good at. And, uh, but I, I sometimes wonder what would have happened if Greg hadn't seen the potential, because if people don't, if they can't see your future potential and they just treat you like, well, you're just a baseline person who's just gonna, you, you know, you just gotta be at this baseline. Uh, maybe I would have just, you know, just taken anything I could have gotten and be still selling doors and windows. Mm. <laughs> and yeah, so I, I think that's tricky and especially tricky because human beings only know what we've been exposed to. And so I didn't know about the startup world, really. I didn't really know much about building web apps or any of that stuff. And once I got into that world, I was like, wow, this, this is a whole world of opportunity and potential here. But I had no idea about it until Greg kind of like pulled me up above the mist. And then I, I could see clearly, right? And it feels like a lot of our experiences are like that when we're younger or if we grew up in small towns or whatever, there's this fog around us of we only know what we know, right? Like people in my town, are like this. These are the good jobs you can get in my town. These are the good jobs that my friends have. And to us, that is the limit of what's possible, right? So if your best, if, if your friend that is an accountant is the one that makes the most money of everyone you know, you'd be like, well, I guess that's, that's really the only path to that kind of life is I have to become an accountant. Um, and expanding your worldview or having your worldview expanded, getting having someone that can bring you above the fog and s- then you can see for miles. Uh, that has been very helpful to me. And it's something that I try to remind younger pe- people of all the time, which is, you know, if I could go back again, uh, I think I spent way too much time in my small town. I wish I had, and I wish I'd even gotten out of Alberta more. You know, I was just, 
Alberta is a fine place and Edmonton and Calgary are incredible cities, but there's still, you know, people like us think like this. That's a Seth Godin thing, right? Mm -hmm. People like us do things like this. And that's true in every province and every state and every country. And so the more you can get out of your bubble and experience new insights, especially build new relationships with people who are not like you, um, the more this fog kinds, kind of lifts and you can see the kind of potential that's out there. And uh, I think most people who get stuck just don't know anything else in the same way that I could have just gotten stuck selling windows and doors and it's paying my bills and I better not rock the boat and I'll just keep doing this. And, you know, if that had happened, I think my life would have been a lot more sad. Um, <laughs> and so I'm glad that it didn't, but it took somebody who was willing to take a risk on me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's been, that's definitely been a, like you bring up a good point of in the perspective, the matter of perspective, right? Like where you don't know what you don't know. And mm -hmm. I, it's, it's been a really tough thing for me to grasp my head around when I started applying for startup jobs, like recently where when I was in accounting, they say, Oh, you work for a big four, get your CA. You're going to, you can, the, the quote they tell you is like, you're going to rule the world. And mm -hmm. I was like, okay, well I have that. And then worked at a top management consulting company, got that. And then worked for one of the best hedge funds in Canada, got that. And then I was getting completely ignored in all these uh, like financial analyst interviews for startups. Like I'd have the talent mm. acquisition person telling me, oh, yeah, this isn't like a nine to five job, like what you did in like a hedge fund or in consulting. And in my mind, mm -hmm. I was thinking, I've only worked like 120 hours a week before. Like what, what perception do you have of my <laughs> world? And it was this complete disconnect. And a part of it was also that, yeah, like there's a good chunk where, you just don't have the time to even like explain yourself to people who, if they just don't understand it. And there's mm -hmm. definitely that like pent up frustration of why won't they see potential? And for you, yeah. like, it seems like you kind of had to go through that too, where you know what you, what you're capable of, but it's like, there is that period where even like they got the Apple store is like, mm, I just don't get it. <laughs> and yeah, put that exactly. assumption on you. And now I have the benefit of hindsight. Mm. Because I, I've, you know, since then, since having some people believe in me, I've been able to kind of get, um, it's like, I just keep climbing this ladder of knowing more and more and having more and more experiences that are all, um, so James Clear is another author I like. He has this idea of the actions we take are the votes for the people identity, right? So I've got this big history of votes of times when I, you know, I've done things and I know, for example, I, you know, I used to be really in awe of certain startup founders mm. and other folks. And now, now that I've met them and hung out with them and sometimes worked with them, I go, Oh, well, I can compete at this level. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's, I'm not saying, I mean, some of these people are I'm way more incredible than me, <laughs> but they're, they're, the, I definitely have a lot of votes of saying, you know what, I've, I, I am the type of person who has these folks as my peers and I can 
I can do work at this level. I, I don't feel like a reject from the Apple store. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I've got enough votes in my favor, in my history, that uh, when I wake up in the morning, I go, I, I still have moments of where I feel crappy about myself, but there's just so many votes there now that it, it's like, okay, I, I know that I can do this. And um, there's other things where I'm, I'm still an absolute beginner. Uh, and I don't feel like I'm, I'm very good yet, but ha- at least having some success in some parts of your life gives you that confidence of, okay, you know what, if I worked on this, I could probably do okay. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I think the, the nice thing now, and this has certainly helped me is that individuals can create a their own platform you know like podcasting helped me connect with all of these founders that i wouldn't have normally connected with and eventually i i was able to kind of make a name for myself because of all these connections i had Uh, the same thing with writing you know i started off and i wasn't very my writing wasn't very good but i just kept doing it and kept doing it and i was able to build a reputation and a platform for myself and this is something that before wasn't possible, right? Before, it's like Justin Jackson, born in Stony Plain, Alberta. I, no one would have any idea who I am. And now individuals can do that. They can create a body of work that goes beyond their resume. So when the Apple store hiring guy is looking at you going, uh, you know, your resume looks like the other thousand resumes I've had, it's different now. Now it's like, no, you can see I have a huge body of work that shows you what I've done and what work I'm capable of, right? And I think that's incredible for for the folks that like doing that kind of thing, the folks that like writing or podcasting or making videos or whatever it is, um, you can create those connections on your own. You can build an audience on your own. You can, uh, you don't need the credentials or anything you can just do it on your own it's pretty crazy mm-hmm. and incredible and it, it also makes you feel better as a person because now you know when you go into those interviews you know that the body of work you've built up you know what kind of reputation you've been able to build for yourself in your little corner of the world and that's empowering it, it makes it makes me feel like i could do more what happens though when like you the market just doesn't respond the way you had hoped for you oh i mean (laughs) yeah that's part of the game (laughs) that's part of the game this is why i'm so like this idea of of markets and certainly there's people who disagree with me and maybe my my maybe i'm still not quite sophisticated enough in my thinking but it just seems for most small businesses, the uh, market demand for what you're selling is number one. It's like, it's so funny to me that where we point our boat at the beginning of a journey, <laughs> at the beginning of a business journey, where you point your boat matters so much. And it's like the first decision you make. It's like the first 1% of what you decide to do. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I'm going to serve florists. And then all of a sudden you're going that way. It's like, well, what about 
and what how much demand is there there what and what more like acutely what do people want now like what are they lining up for and at least in my town the difference between the lineup outside the coffee shop and the the lineup outside the the tea shop is very different the tea shop just has less demand every day my friend andrew opens his coffee shop doors and there is a lineup of people there waiting to buy espresso and coffee and pastries that is demand it's it's demonstrated demand we can see it and so um I think the, the mistake I've made, and I see a lot of people making, is they build a thing and then they go shopping around looking for somebody that might want it. You're just like, oh, you're just like, you know, you have it out in front of you and you're just walking around hoping someone is going to say, oh, I want that, right? Um, maybe it's like, uh, you know, you've, we've all been to events where they're, they're serving hors d'oeuvres, you know, they're just like out the, the, the waiters are out saying, who wants this? You know, who wants this? It's, and I mean, hors d'oeuvres, everyone loves hors d'oeuvres. So that's a bad example, but you know, it's like, we're out like just with our hors d'oeuvres, hoping someone's going to want it as opposed to if somebody orders a burger, you know, they want a burger, they've ordered it. They want it. They have expressed their demand for it. Like they've expressed their, they want it. And so uh, the way I've been thinking about business lately, and this is the way we thought about it before we launched Transistor, was I was like, okay, what is the demonstrated demand for podcast hosting right now? And and part of the reason I felt confident about it is I was I'd been in in the water, so to speak, just waiting, you know, paddling around looking for the next wave, and I could see because I'd been podcasting since 2012, I could see this wave slowly building of demand, right? Mm -hmm. At first it was just hobbyists and DIY people, but then it's like a lot more businesses are starting podcasts. The New York Times is writing about it every week. There's, you know, Joe Rogan hits a certain number. Uh, we had the, the serial thing. Um, you know, it just keeps building and building and building and makes me think, okay, there is demand there now, right? And I just knew tons of people that were starting podcasts, right? And I also knew tons of people who were paying for podcast hosting. So all of that together kind of forms this big giant wave I can see coming. And then I have to decide, am I going to paddle out and try to surf that wave? Or am I going to, you know, keep swimming around looking for another opportunity? The, yeah, the, the, the thing I see most people doing is they, you know, they get their surfboard, which is their product, and then they just they bring it out to a pond and they wonder why there's no wave coming. It's like, well, you, it doesn't work that way. You see the wave and then you decide if you're going to paddle out and try to ride the wave. You don't just like bring your surfboard to any body of water that you want and hope that there's going to be a wave you can ride there. Um, so for me, I'm always looking for the pull of the market. Where is the market pulling for something right now? Mm -hmm. What do they want? And, only when I kind of feel that it's almost magnetic pull of people want this, then that's when I decide if I'm going to jump in and I'm going to, you know, paddle out and try to catch the wave. Mm -hmm. And before Transistor, so uh, after Mail Interactive, where you spent like six and a half years there, you joined in, uh, another 
tech company called Sprintly to be a product marketing mm-hmm. manager for about another year and a half. And then I think that's when you made the kind of shift to Megamaker, which is your company before Transistor. Mm-hmm. What was the uh, difference there? Because like, you said you had all these learnings from creating Transistor, mm-hmm. but that means that you've had a lot of mistakes that you made at Megamaker uh, while building mm-hmm. it. And I'd be curious about like that process where you, from that transition point where you say, okay, now I've made one pivot to the tech world. Now, mm-hmm. about eight years later, I'm going to start a company. And mm-hmm. what were the kind of thesis points there when you said, this is, I, sh- I should make a company. I, this needs to exist. Yeah. I mean, there was, I, there was some demand there. You know, mm-hmm. I had been in the water. I'm doing this podcast called Product People. And I start to get lots of questions about product marketing. And, uh, you know, I, I was product manager for Bailout. And then I was like, I was just getting more interested in marketing myself. And then Sprintly offered me this job uh, from the podcast, actually. That's how I got oh, really? it. And then uh, I went and did product marketing for them. And in the midst of all that, I'm, it's like, I'm just noticing there's this trend of developers trying to launch their own apps and then they, they <laughs> need to get customers for these apps. Maybe I should do something about that. And so I wrote a book called Marketing for Developers and I l- released that in 2015. And it did about, I think around $60,000 of revenue that wow. year. And so I, I thought, oh, okay, there's something here. There's some proven demand. And so the question at that point is, um, you know, I think that maybe the mistake I made, I've never thought about it this way. The mistake I made was like, this wave is about this high. I wonder if I just tried harder, if I could make the wave bigger. Mm. <laughs> and um, so the Sprintly was acquired. And so I had a decision. Do I, do I go out and find another job or do I... Um, you know, start some consulting work or do I build a product? What do I do? And I thought, you know what? Maybe now's the time for me to make this jump. I've been building up this audience. I have a mailing list of like six or 7,000 people. I've been like really wanting to start my own thing for a long time. And, and is this and so, audience uh, at Megamaker when like, the site you Yeah, built this, is like, this is like an audience I built through my blog and podcasting. Hmm. And... I said, you know what, maybe now's the time that I'm going to do it. And so I, um, and I'd also started the, the, it wasn't originally called Mega Maker, but the, the Mega Maker community, which had revenue also. I, you know, I was doing probably $25,000 a year in revenue on Mega Maker. And so I thought, okay, there's both of these things are going. Um, I think maybe I could go full-time on this and just try to, you know, maybe double revenue or whatever. So I did. And the next year, I think I did about $160,000 in revenue or something, or maybe, maybe it was even more than that. I can't remember. And um, I thought, okay, this is great. Uh, But What I realized in retrospect, I think, is, the, by the way, that was fine to do. And maybe for some folks, actually, what I was doing with um, the Mega Maker community and then 
the marketing for developers book and course, maybe that would be enough for some people just for the rest of their lives. Um, for me, you know, if I go back to that, that, that those things I mentioned before markets decline, our desires shift or circumstances change. I think there, the, the big thing is just with a family of, you know, I, there's six of us, I, I needed more consistent revenue and those were very launch based businesses. So you like build up to a launch, then you launch, and then you basically need to make at least 30 grand every launch. Cause it's spent, you've spent two to three months building up to it. Mm-hmm. And if anything happens in between there, so it's like pushing up a, a, a new rock up a hill every three months in that business. And, um, I had to decide if I wanted to keep doing that and it just wasn't practical. You know, I, I, I had some mental health stuff and I got depressed. And so instead of it taking me two to three months to launch something, it took me like eight to 12 months. And then there's just so much desperation and uh, anxiety riding on that launch. If it doesn't do well, uh, you're really stressed out about it. And so, um, yeah, I decided, okay, eventually I'm like, I got to find something else because this, it was like, I was trying to fill a room with, uh, uh, let's think about it like a band. Like I was trying to fill an arena, but I'm really like mega maker was really like a indie corner pub type of band. Right. Like I just couldn't fill the big arena with that, that product. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it was a wave. It just wasn't a big enough wave for what I needed. Mm-hmm. And so that was when I started, you know, to explore other opportunities and eventually found Transistor. And and for the audience who may not be familiar, the Mega Maker community is a community for bootstrappers and smaller, small business creators. And mm-hmm. you were making, so and it's still, it's still, it's still going too. Right. Yeah. And it, and in fact, now that I'm more relaxed about it, it's doing better oh. than ever. <laughs> like I said, I think it probably averaged about twenty-two, $25,000 of revenue a year. And in the last year, I think it's made almost 50000 Wow. So there's, there's something about that, about having a little opportunity. And then you try to like pump it up beyond what it's kind of natural size is, you know? Um, that I think we have to be careful for. Not all opportunities will fill the the room that you might need it to fill. And and so sometimes that's when you need to move on is go, okay, well, this was a this was a nice line drive, but I really need, you know, something bigger right now. And um looking for something bigger is probably the right thing to do in that case if 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 what you're doing is just like pushing something past what it should naturally grow to is also a big mistake. You don't want to do more. Oh, I'm on a call, bud. Later, after I'm done. Um, yeah, so I think I think that was a good lesson to learn. And one of the things that helped me learn that lesson is, again, just expanding my network, uh, continuing to, to be able to see through this fog. I met uh, my friend Adam Wathen. And he had an audience of PHP developers and Laravel developers. And he launched a course and he asked for my help. And he made on his course, Refactoring uh, to Collections, he made more in a month than I had made in a whole year. 
And I, then I could see, wow, the market you serve really does matter. Hmm. The size and momentum in that market matters. And I, here I was thinking, it's like, oh, no, all that matters is I just need to find a group of people that, you know, they're motivated in a certain direction and they've got money to spend. But there are different velocities and different sizes of groups right? And some groups have, are just bigger and have more velocity than others. And um, Adam introduced me to Taylor Otwell, who ha- he is the creator of a framework for PHP developers called Lar- Laravel. And that really kind of just blew my mind open to, wow, there is a world that I had no idea about that's completely under the radar, where these folks have massive audiences. And instead of like launching something every three months, like people in my community were doing, like people like us do things like this, they launch something every two years and make way more money. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I, I think after that, that's when I started to look for a bigger market, a market that had more pull, a market that I knew could grow beyond, uh, you know, a small, you know, a small little pond, something that would be not so big. I don't need to be venture scale, but I knew I needed to be bigger than what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And because right now, Transistor, it's still just you and John, right? You don't have any other employees. And we have two uh, part-time contractors. Oh, okay. So, it, it's just us full-time. Yeah. Right. And you guys are still bootstrapped. Uh, you haven't taken mm-hmm. any venture funding. And Mm-mm. I think in the context of, yeah, like, you know, when you've kind of hit that demand, I think in one of your writings, you talked about how in the first four months of launching Transistor in 2018, your MRR was, your monthly recurring revenue was 4,800. And I think last Mm -hmm. year you surpassed a $30,000 mark. And Mm -hmm. it's like a number that you didn't even- And now we're we're over 60 grand. Wow. Now. Really? And I think in another article you wrote, like you kind of calculated, oh, it might take five years to hit like, 20,000 in MRR mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you were going through that phase early on when you were documenting the build out of Transistor where you were you know, debating, should I get venture funding? You were looking at earnest capital where you were experiencing mm-hmm. a bit of the cash crunch and then you were now comparing different advices from you know, DHH, your base camp, who has like the very well-known base camp way of building companies to like Jason Cohen's of you want to work 80 hours, hit that million dollar revenue. And mm-hmm. you kind of concluded that essay with, you found a way for Justin Jackson, like your own way of processing things. And that's right. I'd love to hear like, what is that? And how, how did you reach that process of your way? I mean, of yeah, this? I mean, that part of it is just knowing, you know, what resonates with me and the base camp way has always resonated with me. Mm. Um, uh, I like those guys. I've been able to form a relationship with them over the years. I started as a massive fan. I'm still, I am a fan. Um, and, uh, I, I know I'm a fan to the point of, you know, I have friends who don't like them and I'm just, I just emotionally, I'm just a fan. I just so identify with their point of view that it's just me. And so, uh, that was part of it. Um, part of it was, I mean, part of it is also the market. Podcasting is not a massive market. It's bigger market than what I had before. It's nowhere near as big as Taylor Otwell's market. You know, there's 
millions of PHP developers around the world. Um, and podcasting, I, I think Libsyn has something like 70,000 podcasts on their platform. Like it's, it's, it's comparatively small. And so, and, and the ceiling is lower then, right? Like we can only grow as fast as this market is growing. And eventually there will be a ceiling where it kind of levels off and there's not as many podcasters starting podcasts, right? And so uh, some of this has to do with the market, but I was, when, I, when, we, when we hit, hit on Transistor, and at the beginning, you're right, I almost forgot about that. Like I, I just didn't even, at the beginning, you don't know. You're just like, okay, like, it, like even when we hit like five grand a month, I was like, which for some people is an absolute dream, um, you know, to have a software product that's making five grand a month. But even then I was like, we're so in the weeds and there's two of us that are working on this and I've got, you know, four kids to feed. And it, it wasn't like, it just seemed like everything was happening so slow. <laughs> and then we hit 10 thousand a month and it was like whoa wow and then it, it wasn't very long until we hit 20 and it things just started accelerating from there and so and in retrospect it's like man that it didn't take very long at all right we thought it would take <laughs> five years and it took something like 18 months or something i can't remember so yeah i think uh part of it is just me realizing how i like to work uh, I've always been like this too. Like I have friends that really want to build big companies and big teams. And I've always liked small. Uh, I, I've sometimes wondered if I should have more ambition, you know, maybe I should really get fired up about taking over the world. Uh, I have a friend from Edmonton, Tim, that just loves, he just loves building big things and he wants to, he likes hopping on planes and, you know, shaking hands and stuff. And I'm just, I'm just a little bit more chill <laughs> and maybe that'll change. But for now, you know, the work is compelling enough. I love serving podcasters. I love helping people with their podcast. Every day I get up and I get to do it and I like it. It's growing and I have life. Um, it's not like a Ferrari life. It's more of a minivan life, but it's comfortable and it has margin. And I wrote a, a blog post about this too, which is I'm, I would way rather have the margin, not just financial margin, but the personal margin. Like today, um, I have two calls today, which is abnormal. Most days I have nothing on my calendar. Most days, I don't even get to the office until like 10 o'clock. Most days, I spend a lot of my time writing and thinking and making videos, sometimes not even about Transistor. That to me is a great life. And if I won the lottery tomorrow, I would probably still want to get up and do some podcasting and make some videos and do some writing that's, that's it. Right. And meet interesting people. So I think 
some of this is going to come through your own just reflection and it ha helps once you get a bit older and you can look at the tone of your life so far. Some things will change in terms of, you know, what you want out of life, but some things stay very the same. And, you know, I've always just, you know, I've worked on teams that were 20 or 30 people and I just always want, loved it when I was just working on a team of five people. That's my favorite. So yeah, I think for me, that's how it's looked. It's just part of it has to do with the market you choose. It's going, it's going to grow at a certain rate that you can't control. But if you can find a market that, that the, the cadence kind of fits your natural rhythm, then that's, yeah, that's even better. Because then you can just kind of live the life you want to live. Um, and I think sometimes maybe people do get in the trap of feeling like, oh, if I just work super hard and if I just really start cranking on this thing and then they get, they get addicted to really long days and which I've, I mean, I'm, I've been guilty of some of that too, but, you know, guilty to really long days and guilty to adding all these things to their life and more and more complexity and more and more stuff that kind of sits on your shoulders all the time. And for me, like this is the most relaxed I've ever been. And I just kind of dig it. Mm -hmm. No, it's, I think, I think it definitely is. Uh, it's a kind of life like, that I definitely resonate with, but I can definitely see a lot of people from my old uh, white collar world that will kind of look at it funny. Like they always looked at me funny when I said I wanted to do that. And yeah. Have you, have you, have you read the book uh, Small Giants by Bo Burlingham? Mm -hmm. No, I think you'd like it. It's about a bunch of small companies that just dominate a tiny niche. They make like limited amount of products every year and they just shut business down when they want to. Um, Wait, yeah, it sounds like exactly what I'd like. Yeah, I think uh, like that. Those are like the kind of books where like, I, like I found Transistor because I've been a big fan of Basecamp. And then I was like, oh, you you like to talk a lot about Jason Fried and DHH. That's mm -hmm. interesting. And then that's how I got... Uh, becoming a customer of you but yeah you kind of do find your people and i think that yeah. is important like as you find yourself drawn to certain things mm -hmm. you know like tim again he's you know I, I i'm just guessing but i'm sure he loves mark cuban and you know he probably <laughs> likes jeff bezos like i can't stand bezos i <laughs> i write bad stuff about bezos all the time um i and so you're kind of drawn to these folks that, you know, hit something inside of you and it's worth listening to that. Um, and it's worth, you know, paying attention to that. I think mm -hmm. if that's what's in you already and then figuring out how can you find a market that serves, you know, that, that desire that's inside of you and build something for that market that fits into your life. It's one of the things that, is difficult about starting a business is that, you know, we talk a lot in startups about needing product market fit. So you, you build a product that the market wants, but there's also market founder fit. Do you like this group of people? There's also product founder fit. Is this product going to give you out of life what you want? Um, or maybe even, um, <laughs> maybe there's a fourth one, which is business model. Uh, founder fit is this business model going to give you what you want out of life and then product founder fit is you know does this business align with your val values does the product excite you um, 
you know, so there's all these filters we need, which is why starting a business is actually very difficult because all of these things have to align um, for it to kind of work. And so it's why, you know, it took me a long time. <laughs> yeah, like you, you commonly joke about how like uh, you've got the older folks in the tech community that started companies. And I think you started mm -hmm. Transistor when you were 37. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm 39 right now. Uh, so 38, I was 38 because it was, it was in, uh, actually no, 37, yeah. I, I, my birthday's in June and I was born in 1980. So um, yeah, we, we both felt, I think John and I both felt a bit older. Uh, you can do this when you're young. It just depends on how many repetitions you get in while you're young. Like my friend, Nathan Berry is, I think he's only 27 but he's just been putting in repetitions in kind of one direction since he was 16. Yeah. I, I read his story from the founder of ConvertKit, right? Yeah. 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 So I, it's definitely, it's, it's almost, sometimes it can feel unfair, especially when you're a bit <laughs> older of like, man, like if I just got started earlier, but again, if I hadn't started in 2008, then I would have never, you know, you, you almost always have to kind of put in your decade. Sometimes it's faster. Um, it's definitely five years. You know, I, don't, I haven't seen anyone do it kind of the whole starting and then iteration after iteration after iteration. It, five years is probably what it's going to take you, that you'd be lucky. And then a decade of continual pursuing and figuring yourself out and figuring the markets out and, you know, spending lots of time in the water and trying to surf different waves and eventually finding, you know, being in the right place at the right time and having the skill to paddle out and ride a wave, um, that can be easily a decade. But if you start that when you're 16, then maybe by the time you're 26, you'll have that thing that you want, right? Um, so a lot of it depends on when you start. But you know, starting it when you're 40 and then having something that you really like when you're 50 is still a pretty good deal. Mm -hmm. I think the uh, comp the answer where like everything kind of crosses over is just the ability to survive the resilience that you need to actually push through to hit the five-year, 10-year mark. Like my, mm. my father's been an entrepreneur, like a, he's a solopreneur too for the last like 10 years. And mm -hmm. he was telling me when I embarked on this journey two years ago that he was saying, just be prepared to eat shit for about five years. Cause he didn't see like, I guess like kind of hockey stick stuff until year seven. And mm -hmm. so he was telling me, just kind of giving me a forewarning. And yeah, like, I think that's the thing where it's been two years and I haven't really found a way to get the kind of like monetization or generate income. I'm still trying to figure out how to make all this happen. But it's, yeah, I think it's, that's just been what I've been learning from talking to so many more entrepreneurs is to just tell me, just iterate and just constantly try it and do things until you find yeah. it. Yeah. I think what you have to be careful of is when I say iterate, I don't mean um, iterate on the same idea over and over again. Right. You're, you're iterating on yourself, right? Like when I started the Product People podcast, I think part of me wanted that to be my full-time job, hmm. but it wasn't the right form for it to be my full-time job, right? Um, and my friend Cortland, you know, he started Indie Hackers and I think he wanted that to be his full-time thing. And you know, it was in its current form, it wasn't quite right, but then Stripe acquired him and now it's a perfect form, right? right? He has the money coming in and it fits 
all yeah. of those check marks. And so the, the, when you're that, that five years or 10 years I'm talking about, and Nathan Barry, I mean, he started when he was 16 doing web development for startups and then eventually made an app for the iOS store when he was probably in his early 20s. And then he wrote a book on design that did very well. There's these iterations that he went through as a person and eventually came to ConvertKit and then ConvertKit at first was a real loser. Like it wasn't, it wasn't doing very well. And uh, I was even telling him not to do it anymore because <laughs> his other stuff was doing so well, but he had the foresight to say, no, I think this is the right one. And so mm -hmm. he doubled down. There's the tricky part is knowing when to double down. And like you said, like you could stick with this project for another two years and maybe that will be the right decision but maybe it'll be the wrong decision. Right. And there has to be, um, I think one way to short circuit that a little bit is to set yourself a deadline to say, okay, like Nathan said, if this, if ConvertKit is doing this amount of revenue by this date, I'm going to keep going. But I'm going to, the difference is I'm going to put everything I have into it instead of just doing it on the side. Mm. And so he gave it a really good go. Um, but, you know, I, I know friends who just keep trying to iterate on the same business and the business is a dud. Like it's just not working. It just, it will never be the thing. Right. And so having a deadline to say, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try this. I'm going to iterate here. I'm going to do this. But you know, after this date, maybe it's time for me to look at something else. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't, when I was in that mode, I, again, I didn't just shut everything down right away. I still needed mega maker revenue to fund my life until I found something new. But, uh, and it wasn't until I had a firm grasp that transistor was going to be the thing that I let go of the old thing more mm -hmm. or less. Right. Uh, so yeah, I, navigating this process is tricky. This is, this is the whole thing. It's, it, it's difficult. Um, and so the advice is correct. Like you might have to eat shit for a while, but be careful. Just make, be careful. You're not sending yourself up to eat shit for the rest of your life. Yeah. I think um, that's the, that's the one where I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out <laughs> and I'm constantly trying to iterate to not go down that route. But yeah, there are definitely mm -hmm. moments where it's just, there's a lot of doubt. It's scary. Sometimes you get anxious. Sometimes things mm -hmm. feel clear, clearer. But at the same time, when everything quiets down and you're alone in like a room, mm -hmm. all the doubt starts creeping back in. And mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> it is helpful to sometimes look at who is in your space that is doing well or appears to be doing well. Mm -hmm. Appearances can be deceiving, but who seems to be doing well? And then asking yourself some honest questions like, do I want that life? One thing that Nathan said to me when he, con he switched to ConvertKit, I was like, man, why are you giving up this whole info product business? You've got this, this book and this course that are doing incredible. You make, you know, two or 300 grand a year doing that. That just seems like I would kill for that business. And he said, well, you know, I know some people who have been doing this a long time. And I know some people who have been doing more than two or 300,000, like they've gotten to a million. So I just don't want that life. Like you just have to, all the things you have to do, you have to hire people at that point. Mm. Uh, it's very fickle. Like 
again, you can build up to a launch and it can go badly. And then you're in trouble. You're always on this treadmill of having to launch something new. And he said, I just didn't want that life. And so I started thinking about ConvertKit because that seemed like more of what I wanted. And uh, if there are, if the successful people in your in your sphere, if you don't like their life or if you don't know enough about their life, <laughs> you know, figure out what is their life really like as far as you can tell, and then figure out, you know, what are the customers like? How much? How do the business cycles work? How do the business models work? And decide if that's what you want, right? Mm-hmm. Decide what it. It, and also figure out what does it take? Not just what does it take to be successful once, but what does it take to be you know, successful in an ongoing way? And those kind of like brutal questioning, I think can be helpful. When you ask the hard questions now, um, makes it a lot easier in the long run, as opposed to just you know, uh, patronizing yourself with easy questions. And then you'll just have a hard life because the hard stuff just keeps getting pushed out. So I'd be looking at what are, you know, the people who are successful or the people who I'd like to be like, I'd like a business like that. What does it take? You know, my, again, my friend, Adam Lavin, he's doing great with courses and with one-time sales because he makes so much money in the one-time sales that he's just able to have a great life where he can do one launch and then just live that off that launch for a couple of years and have tons of money in the bank. Um, That's working out well for him. And so, you know, if I aspired to be like that, I already know I'm not going to be like that because I'm not, uh, I'm not a very good programmer. So I'm just never going to be that guy. Um, But if I was a programmer and I was like, you know, I want to be like Adam Wathen, then I would say, okay, what did it take Adam to get there? You know, and it was about five, 10 years of doing this and doing this and doing this and doing this and then building up to a point where he got there. You should also ask the question, like, who are the other thousands of people who have tried to be like Adam but didn't succeed, and why? Mm. What what defines them, right? Um, yeah, it's tricky, but I I found like asking the hard questions is better. Just being like, okay, there's still uncertainty. Like again, I I didn't know if Transistor was going to be a success. Adam, every time he launches something new, <laughs> he still has anxiety about it not working. So, you know that maybe doesn't go away, but there are some good hard questions you can ask uh, about yourself, about other people in the industry, and especially about the market. What evidence is there that people are pulling for this thing I'm trying to offer? And by pulling, I mean, they take out their wallets every day and they buy. Like every day you can open up your doors to business and there's someone there waiting. And, you know, there's certain things like, advertising right now is not doing very good. Mm-hmm. So if you were selling ad ads, whether it was Facebook ads, podcast ads, YouTube ads, doesn't matter. Uh, right now you open up your doors every day and there's not very many people waiting in line to buy ads. And so, you know, at least for the time being, I wouldn't start an ad business unless there was an angle there. Right. No. Yeah. That's uh yeah, it's funny because right before all this happened, I was actually pursuing getting partnerships for my podcast and all those sort of shut immediately with this timing. Mm. So I've had to pivot. Um, but yeah, that's, these are things I'm constantly like, working on. But I know we're kind of running 
close to the uh, time limit here. And so a final question I, I want to ask you is if you could give your 28-year-old self advice, what mm -hmm. uh, advice would you give to that self who mm -hmm. had left the not-for-profit world and was looking for that pivot? Mm. I mean, I would have definitely looked beyond, I was just looking in my immediate town, like who around me could hire me? Mm. And I wish I'd looked beyond, I wish I'd have thought like, you know, why not just think about companies I'd really like to work for? I've always, like, I've always thought about working for and just see if I can get someone like that on the phone or see if I can like fly into New York and go to a meetup and just meet some other people and see what they're doing, you mm -hmm. know? Uh, maybe I, I wish I'd gotten out of my bubble. Mm -hmm. And you, you think like I was on the internet for, you know, since I was a kid. So you, you, you have, you know, there's the ability to reach out to folks, but I, I, I was in, in terms of employment, you know, everybody I knew who got a job just got it from somebody local. And so I never thought like, oh, wait, I really admire this business. Maybe I should like figure out how to get in touch with them. You know, mm -hmm. um, maybe I should try to, you know, whatever, go to a conference or go to a meetup or go and just get out of my bubble and see what else is out there. And, um, and yeah, I, I, I wish I'd done that sooner because the more you kind of expand the map, the world that you can see, the more I think opportunities kind of show themselves. Um, I would have certainly started the podcast earlier mm. because podcasting is such a great way. Um, even if you have no listeners, the ability to talk to people who are not in your town is such an incredible opportunity. And, you know, I didn't start my podcast until, oh, geez, when was that? <laughs> 2012 maybe so you know i waited until i was 32 i wish i'd i wish i'd done it right away that's great advice and for the listeners if you want to start a podcast go host it on transistor.fm oh that's <laughs> what i like to hear yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll just pass you that virtual 20 dollars bill yeah. <laughs> well uh justin i really had a lot of fun today um i really enjoyed hearing your story and also getting all the advice that's definitely helped me on my own journey and so i appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your story with myself and my guests thank you yeah no yeah this is fun I, i'd be happy to come back anytime yeah that'd be awesome all right take care all right thank you for listening to the podcast i hope the story was inspiring to you it hopefully it also helped you expand your perspectives hopefully it also made you question the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had. And maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it, doing something different maybe, challenging yourself, being courageous. Who knows? But regardless, I'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest. And if you would like to somehow, in some way, contribute and help support the podcast and maybe even just be part of the community that I'm trying to build with the greater OMD Ventures platform, really think about being a stakeholder in the platform. And the quick way to do that is to go to my website, oldmandan.com and go to the stakeholders page. I believe it's oldmandan.com slash stakeholder. 
and the link is also down below and that's how you can figure out how you can subscribe follow to get more updates on the free content but at the same time also donate and donate by actually just buying me a coffee that's just how i put it and you can buy me a coffee a month coffee a week or coffee every day of the year and think about it as the way that you know if you wanted to chat with me you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat you might buy them a coffee so i'm just think of it as i'm the service that's doing that for you so you can just pay me in coffees <laughs> don't worry uh everything will still be free it's just it would just really help if you would like to show your support this way so that i can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees and also to buy my guests actual coffees at and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform as well as even keep it operationally alive as well because it all this isn't really free and it does take a lot of time to build it as well as operate it and hopefully grow it further so your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute and so yeah just check out the website go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder all right thank you